Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. On this show, we share the stories of how different actors up and down the value chain are working to take climate action through food. It's all about inspiring collaboration, discussing the good that is happening, the challenges we share, and realizing a common vision for our future food system. I'm your host, Annalisa Winther, and let's jump in. Puris is a family business that was founded by Jerry Lorenzen in the 1980s. Back then, Jerry worked as a feed salesman in the Midwest of the United States. In his job, he realized how inefficient the food system was. The feed they were selling to livestock farmers was full of plants that contained protein. What if, he thought, you could cut out the livestock and feed all of that plant protein directly to people? Then we would have more than enough food to feed the world. With that, his vision for protein independence was born along with Pyrrhus. In particular, Jerry realized that yellow field peas held enormous potential. A cash crop, they can be grown alongside other crops like soy and corn. They fixate nitrogen and are a great source of protein. But how to make peas happen? Pyrrhus realized that to make a market for peas, they would have to vertically integrate the supply chain and develop an end-to-end solution. That means they not only had to breed the seeds, which they then sold to the farmers, but they also guaranteed the farmers that they would buy back the harvest. This took the risk out of growing something new. From there, they turned the peas into different ingredients like pea fiber, starch, and protein, which they sell to food companies like Beyond Meat, who is one of their customers. Today, Puris is the largest producer of pea protein in North America. Now, all of this is a pretty big deal. Part of Tesla's claim to fame was breaking down every part of the car as we know it, rethinking each component, and then rebuilding it through vertical integration. Puris is basically doing the same thing, but with food. In today's episode, we dive into Puris's startup story, covering everything from seed breeding to market making and their joint venture with Cargill, one of the largest agribusinesses in the world, who has invested over $100 million in building up production capacity with them. While the story is based in the U.S., countries all over the world are looking for ways to build up plant-based farming and develop a market for these kinds of goods. Puris provides a model for how to do that. To speak to all of this, my guest is Tyler Lorenzen, who is the co-CEO of the company with his sister, Nicole Atchison. Fun fact is that Tyler was a professional NFL player with the New Orleans Saints before entering the family business. We also touch upon how he made the leap from athletics to food. This episode packs a punch, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Tyler. Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. I am so excited to have you on today. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me on, Annalisa. So I think we need to start today's story with your father, because a lot of this takes root with him. And he had this idea of feeding people first and protein independence. So can you talk a little bit about the seeds that he first planted and just his story, and then we'll take it from there? Absolutely. You know, my dad is my hero, and it's hard to know obviously your dad is your dad and you grow up and they're, they're your pops. And growing up in a family business, it was hard to know he was such a visionary back then. And my sister always reminds me of that, that 
many people thought, including us, that he was a little crazy about how he forecasted the future and how the role that we were supposed to play in shaping that. And it seems kind of cliche today when you talk about the world's moving from seven to 10 billion people. We need to address how we feed those people because people will go hungry and the way we're doing it today isn't sustainable. Now there's millions of companies that get funded through that pitch alone, whether it's you know good food or bad food or whatever you believe, that's, that's the story. Everyone's trying to save the world, so to say. And his vision was pretty simple, that if you give farmers a choice, you give farmers the tools, growers is what we call them, they'll, they'll grow it. And if you can secure their markets and give them a, a place to sell those products, uh, they'll grow it more. And if you create great tasting foods that people like to eat, then they'll eat it. And if you pull out all the friction of the system, you can create a food system of the types of foods that we want to eat forever. And that was his whole premise. And sure enough, he built that company uh, slowly, but surely I like to tell the story in, you know, kind of 10, 10 year sprints. So decade by decade. So we're, we're in the midst of our fourth decade. But the first 10 years was about building seed technology. So designing seeds through natural breeding methods that created a unique outcome in the food, but also solved the issues of a farmer. So could you get farmers to grow these seeds? And that was the first 10 years starting back in 1985. And then 10 years after that was now that we've proven we have seeds that farmers want to grow, can we build markets that we can sell them into? So buying what our, what our farmers grow back. And then the next 10 years was, okay, that's great. Can we create more value for the system by turning those great soybeans and peas into usable ingredients that food makers can make into great tasting food? And, and we've done that. And now this next 10 years, we're kind of closing the whole loop and saying, can we make and build the foods of the future that people want to eat? And can we participate in, in shaping that and so our end-to-end model is what we call it. It's it's around you know closed loop, sustainable food, all built from plants and and really our view of it is if you can make food that gives more than it takes, that's something we certainly should scale and that's what we're trying to do at Purus. Absolutely. Mm. And when we think of your dad being the visionary, what was it that he saw was broken in the food system, and why was he so interested in plants and the potential of plants and growing plants? When you look at agriculture in general, there's you know, 80 million acres of soybean, 90 million acres of corn. You take corn alone, about a third of it goes to make fuel. A third of it goes to make ingredients and different processing technologies. And then the rest goes to feed animals. Soy is a very similar story, but it's about two thirds goes to feed animals. So we grow so much. We have all of this high production land that we end up feeding animals that then they have proteins and carbohydrates that they then turn into muscle tissue and milk and different proteins that we then consume. And mm-hmm. that whole model is, is broken and it, it will not scale as we know if, if people want to eat more of the things that we've grown to love around the world. So as, as countries and economies move from emerging to where the United States and Europe have been for a long time, we all know that people want to consume more meat. And so can you make meat and proteins from plants? Because all of those same proteins and amino acids that you need were in the plants to begin with. So if you cut out the middleman, the animal, could you really make a system 
that's scalable. Like I say, it's so cliche talking about today because everyone, everyone's saying this, but this is what I heard thousands and thousands of speeches back when I was a kid. And, and it really came from a moment when he was selling feed. Uh, so my dad was a district salesman for Purina and he sold feed to hog lots. And he did the calculation of what the feed, feed ration was and how much feed it took to grow a, grow a hog. And it just didn't make sense to him. So he set out to build a different way. And you know, now we're making you know pork, so to say, but it just comes from peas instead. And if I'm correct, I believe he started with soy and playing around with seed breeding and all that stuff. So of course he worked as this feed salesman, but in the side, he was starting to develop whatever was going to come about and become purist later on. So what was he doing? Like what, when you were kids, what was he like playing around with? Yeah. Uh, my mom and dad definitely had a side hustle before that was something that was normal. Uh, so, so the side hustle was our company. It was purist. Uh, it was called FT genetics at the time and frontier seeds. So we have a number of companies that make up our, our, our business today. And so he was paying the bills and my sister was too. I was just born when they started the company. Mm-hmm. And, and they, my parents were in their twenties, you know, 24 and, and 22 years old. They were very, very young. And they, they just started the company and, and built it, you know, step-by-step. Step. And we worked a lot, you know, growing up, I remember my dad working every weekend and the kids, you know, we were employee three and four mom was number two. So my mom and dad, they spent a ton of time, you know, working on the business and growing it. And uh, my my grandparents had a farm in Iowa, and that was where our first uh, testing plot was. And then it just kind of expanded step by step. And I'll, I can actually remember the day my dad was told to he had to pick whether he was going to do his side hustle or work for the company that was employing him. And he sat us all down. I, this is crazy. This is like the flashback at the moment. I sat us all down and said, you know, we're going to go do this. And that's, that's going to put our family in a tough spot, but this is, this is what we're set out to do. And those are always that conviction. And you look back and the likelihood of success is so small, so small. And yet my parents, you know, Renee and Jerry Lorenzen just said, so what someone's got to do it. Why not us? And that's been built into the DNA of everyone that works at Pierce today. And is why we take on challenges that are really hard and the messy middle. And it's sometimes not fun at all, but we make it happen because, you know, someone's got to do it. Why not us? It's the beauty of entrepreneurship, but also the grit that it takes to bring an idea into being. And I mean, as kids, you were also doing seed seed breeding and many people have never had the insight into like, what actually is that? I mean, my memories of biology class are very long ago. So can you talk a little bit about what that process of invention is when you are developing a new seed and how it looked like in the back of your garden versus what happens on the industrial scale? And we'll start with that kind of part of the company and starting up that kind of business. So I, I think a lot of times people get confused on breeding versus GMO. And so genetic modification versus breeding. So they're different. There is breeding that happens in GMO, but the, the key difference is GMO is using two unlike species to make a new species. So taking and GMO stands for genetically modified organism. That's correct. And that, that is different. It's done. Now there's different technology where they can actually uh, identify 
different genes and adjust them. Um, CRISPR technology, gene editing is what they call it. But there's also the original form of GMO, which is taking, call it a rose plant and crossing it with uh, soybean to make it resistant to glyphosate or Roundup. And that's largely what GMO has been done to do, uh, historically speaking. Well, my dad didn't have that technology. Rather, he had natural breeding methods. So he took different traits from studying the plants in the fields and saying, okay, I'm looking for this outcome and that outcome and taking two soybean plants or two pea plants or two corn plants, and then creating a new seed that maybe could grow a little faster or had higher protein or tasted a little better. So we call that natural breeding. And that's, that's what Purist does. We're not in the GMO business and, or, or gene editing. And I, I think it's a, probably not the right topic to argue who's right or who's wrong. And that's not really our point. Our point is, can we build the outcomes in our way that makes great tasting food, that mm-hmm. makes high vigor plants that farmers want to grow? And can we connect the two sides? And if, and if we're able to do that, then people want to grow those plants. And when you, when you actually do the breeding, you know, my sister ran our, our soy breeding when we were kids and I was a corn breeder. So corn's a little different than soybeans. Uh, corn, you have to take, uh, there's actually a male and a female plant and you take pollen from the male and you literally then dump it onto the silks, the ear of the female plant. So there's, uh, it's pretty interesting. You, you even have inbreds that then make a hybrid. So corn is really, quite common. Wow. Yeah. And that's, that's why sometimes it's, it's hard to control uh, pollen drift on corn because that's, that's how they do it. So when you see, you know, detasseling fields, they're, they're pulling the, the tassel off of the female plants and leaving the tassels on of the male plants to create seed corn. And those are two inbreds that are crossing to make seed corn anyways. And soybeans, they have little flowers that grow that then turn into pots. Well, if you want to create a new pod, you have to take a flower from a different plant and you use tweezers and you get out the little tiny uh, pollen and you rub it on the other one and you put a tag and that marks this new try to create a new, new plant and it'll grow. Sometimes it takes, sometimes it does not, but when it does, now you have three seeds and those three seeds get planted and now you have multiple seeds and then you start the process. So the amount of iterations to get to a row and to get to a field is incredible. You know, we have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of different genomes that are in our replicated trials from pea and soybeans are basically the same thing uh, in, in terms of breeding. And their likelihood of success is very low. So you have to just keep trying, keep trying to get the outcomes that you want while having the, the agronomic characteristics for the farmer at the same time. So it's this unique connection between the food, but also the agronomy that creates what we think is uh, the really special sauce that Purist is all about. And of course, other companies are looking at how do you short circuit that by you know, identifying the gene in the plant and editing it to the outcome that you want. It's also very challenging. So I think there's a lot of buzz around this and, and, and certainly people are uh, investing a lot of uh, dollars in, in terms of solving it in a different way. And uh, our belief was if you can solve the problem without it, that's in our control and we can move faster. So that, that's how we've handled it to date. 
I mean, it sounds like it takes an incredible amount of time to get to a seed that you want to sell in the market. Um, and it is something that's happening out in the fields. So what does it look like then if, if there is a difference, I'm not sure, from the industrial scale, if they're trying to create a lot of seeds to sell to the tons of farmers that there are out there? The field work doesn't stop. So I, I think that is still true for, for them as well. I think the difference is there's there's a lot of work that's done uh, from a gene perspective in labs and, and such and, and through uh, machines now. And all of that is great, but you still have to propagate the seed and do all of the breeding to enhance the, the amount that you have, which that's just a lot of work. So the time to market is, you know, it can be up to seven years or to get a, a non-segregating variety to, to sell to a farmer. And, you know, that seven years, that means there's seven years and multiple growing seasons too, because we have breeding locations, uh, winter nurseries is what they're called around the world that you can enhance the speed. But that means there's that many times of points of failure that something falls out. And more oftentimes than not, uh, a variety won't make it. I heard some story in preparing for this of, I think it was your dad trying a whole bunch of different trials and he convinced some farmers to go for it and being like, what do you have to risk if you just plant a bunch of these different seeds to see what works? And like most of it didn't, but the couple that did, he was so excited about because it's like, if you know the story, probably tell yeah. it better than me, but <laughs> I thought that so, yeah. was so interesting. So that the the story you're referencing is, I love when my dad tells it because it's so funny. Uh, his belief was if you could take peas that are grown in Canada and adapt the varieties to grow in the United States and Southern United States, it could be an unlock for farmers that could have a rotational crop, but a double crop that is more or less a cover crop that they get paid for. And this is his whole vision. Like how do we enhance the profitability per acre while fixating, fixing nitrogen and adding nutrients to the soil, but you, you pay a farmer. So his, his try was we're going to grow these in Kansas and we'll see how it goes. So to make a program work with the farmer, it needs to be consistent. It needs to work every year and there needs to be markets. So when you go into these new areas, lots of times there's pressure around uh, disease, you know, from soil health issues, the climate, all, all of these different factors that you ha- that are at play. And so he gets a group of farmers to grow peas down in Kansas. And he's like, look, they're all going to die. All of them are going to die. And the farmers are like, all right, Jerry, we'll, we'll trust you. Uh, but you just told us they're all going to die. He's like, yeah, they're all going to die. And so sure enough, what happens, they all die and just, but a couple and, you know, the farmer's like, well, Jerry, you told us they were going to die. And they did, you know what, we'll, we'll do it again. And my dad's like, they all didn't die. A couple of them lived. And that little chance was now what was unique about that plant? What was unique about that? And then he started building a program and now we're growing peas all over the country. I mean, it's shocking how many peas we have. And I think our view is you have 90 million acres of corn. Someday, could there be peas that cover all of that land? And if so, how much nitrogen would we take out of the system or anhydrous ammonia could we take out of the system and do it the way nature intended? And that's, that's really powerful. So I want to dive into that and break it down a lot because there's a lot of rich things in what you just said. So perhaps first starting a bit more about this idea that peas don't actually grow everywhere. 
but they are a very important cover crop and they can be a cash crop. So why is it exciting that peas can actually be grown all over the country or potentially all over the world? Yeah, and they can grow everywhere. I would say like they can physically grow, but not the way you need them to grow. So if you can do that, there's all legumes have this ability to fix nitrogen. We all learned it in biology and, and you take nitrogen in the, from the air, convert it to a usable fertilizer for the plant. And they actually overproduce and, and crops like corn, wheat, oats, hemp, they all need nitrogen. They're nitrogen needing crops. So these, these types of crops, farmers rotate with soybeans and the soy and corn rotation, it, it's better than none at all, but there's some limitations that can come from it. There creates this um, almost a binary system that many call mono monoculture, but it's but in the end, it's it's really two separate plants. And through that, it can become stale. So with adding a, a pea into the rotation or even other diversity and biodiversity is king and soil health is really about biodiversity, you start breaking up the cycle. And you can create better outcomes in your other plants because you're creating richness into the soil. So by having not only the capability of growing peas, but more importantly, Annalisa is a market to sell them to. We have a, a board member who tells a story about he is a very large uh, organic fresh produce player, the largest in the space uh, years ago. And they grew peas on all of their, their spinach fields, but they just plowed them under because they added so much richness to the soil, but there's no place to sell them. So they used it as a soil health building. And when you look at organic agriculture, you're investing all of this money into three years of no chemicals and all of the rules. And then you get one crop per year. How can we add to that? How can we build more robust systems? So doing good is also doing good for farmers' pocketbooks. And that, that that's really the ambition that we have. So with peas, I mean, I don't know how many people listening have ever seen a pea crop. So like, I'm curious just for you to describe if you're growing corn, you're growing soy, or you're growing something, and then you're growing pea alongside that. Is it a big crop? Is it a small crop? So can you kind of paint a picture through words of like what it looks like? So when you, when you, you buy products on in the supermarket, you'll see a lot of green pea pods on many products and, and then many people's logos for that matter. And it's actually not green peas that are the basis of pea protein. So what goes into the plant-based burgers and what goes into uh, plant-based milks and protein shakes, it comes from yellow field peas. So more like a split pea. So the, in the end, think split pea soup, that is the material that we're turning into protein ingredients and starches and fibers. And rewind to what, what does it look like for a farmer? What does it look like in a field? They're very similar looking to soybeans. Not exactly, but very similar. The difference between peas is they kind of grow and tangle themselves together. So it's really fascinating trying to walk through a pea field. It's incredibly hard. And you can use similar equipment as you do for soy. And then in, in certain areas, you use different equipment. Uh, for example, you may have to uh, uh, swath them down and lay them down in the field and then pick them up with a combine later. But in the end, our bias was we need to make peas grow in a way that 
farmers can use the same equipment that they already have, which is largely what's happened uh, in all places that peas are grown. You know, look, there's over 3 million acres of peas grown in Canada, and there's about a million acres of peas grown in the United States. Our ambition is 90 million. So there's a long ways to go. But when you, you start thinking about changing the way people eat, and if plant-based proteins become a bigger chunk of our protein supply, you know, you forecast the amount of peas that are grown around 30% of them would be needed to be used to make these types of food. So what gives? There's already markets for that 30%. So how do we, how do we grow more in a way that makes more sense in terms of sustainability and ESG outcomes that people are, are going after? And I think that's what we are about is how do we build food systems with intention? not just trying to make products. And where did the idea or the realization of yellow peas come from and pea protein? You're the largest producer of pea protein within the United States. So where did that come from? Yeah, we're, you know, actually with our our new uh, plant in in Western Minnesota, we're the largest producer in North America. So between our two facilities and what happened with, with that story, it's, it's pretty simple. I mean, my, my father believed in peas and the power of peas back in the 90s and worked on this before there was even anyone that wanted to buy them. And myself and Kashal, who started our protein part of our business back in 2011, we were working on soy protein technologies and hexane-free, organic, trying to make soy better and not better in a way, the protein's always been very powerful, but not some of the baggage that soy had, hexane, GMO, and, and, and those things are controllable. Then there's the uncontrollable part about soy that I think is the perception that many consumers had certainly at that time. And I think to a degree carries today. And I, I like to coin it as Google is a search engine, not a truth engine. So there was a lot of naysayers around you know, what soy can do to you, whether that's true or not. And I would argue that most of it is unfounded and soy is a really good protein to consume. However, allergen, allergenicity, uh, some of this baggage was real. And so instead and even of, the Google part of deforestation, I mean, like if you start getting into global soy trade, there's a lot yeah. that will come up on that Google search. And 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 too bad for the, the soy protein guys because and gals, because they they have nothing to do with that. You most, I mean, a very small amount actually goes to making soy ingredients to feed people. And if it was, all of it was made to feed people, oh my goodness, we'd have so much protein, but most of it goes to feed animals. And now with biodiesel, you know, a lot of it's going to go to make fuel and then feed animals. So, and I'm not going to sit here and try to argue the merits of that, but what we did look at is, okay, all of that is true and is happening whether it's true from uh, what's the outcomes are what people are saying, but it's certainly the mindset of consumers and people that this is an issue. So how can we give everything that's good about soy, but none of the other stuff? And that's mm-hmm. when we were like, we need to go after peas. And so we called up Jerry and said, Hey, you know, the pea program you were doing. And I tried to convince my dad to kill it uh, right, right before I went to college. Like you need to kill the, the pea breeding program. You have so much going on. You know, you should focus on your soy and co- corn program. And thank God he didn't listen to you, huh? <laughs> he's like, he's like, no, you're all wrong. He goes, there'll be peas on every acre around, around the country someday. Like it's needed and just wait. And now with the, like the contamination of waterways and 
you know, agriculture runoff and different things. Like it is an existential issue and, and finding regenerative agriculture is fundamentally coming from this problem. And peas are a great solution to make it happen. So fast forward to where we're at today, we decided that if we could make pea protein taste great and be able to use it in a multitude of application and whatever meal occasion someone wanted to have protein, if we could make it from plants, they could choose plants over animals. And if we could make it that frictionless, we might just have a product that people will want to buy. And once we built a product that people wanted to buy, we were like, can we scale this up and make money? And then from there, we've just built it bigger and bigger. And what now what Purist is about is we're, we don't just sell pea protein. We sell starches. We sell fibers. We're making finished products. We're working through the whole system end to end, creating what we think is the future of how people will eat. And it won't be this is pea meat or this is plant meat or this is pea milk or whatever. It just comes from plants and it just is. And if we could be the preference and the reference and help shape the way the future generations consume food, that's pretty fun. Certainly hard, but it's a lot of fun and and it's purpose for work. It is a lot of fun. And I think now's a good time to bring up your background because I hadn't heard the story that you tried to kill the pea program. If anything, I heard it that when you came into the business, you reinvigorated it and we're like, we need to go all in and then, you know, help the business pivot that way. So that's kind of interesting. But before that you'd been an athlete. So, and I know even when we think of athletes and the perception of what is protein, where does protein come from? Is it animal-based? Is it plant-based? Whatever. A lot of people would be skeptical, be like plant-based protein, you know, like I can't, I work out a lot. I can't have that. So what was that journey of athlete to now CEO of a food company, plant-based protein, like what happened? So my, I grew up obviously working for the family business, but my true passion was sports. And the way my dad always framed it up was that sports are finite and they will end. And when they end, it'll happen and it'll be gone. And so if it's something that you're going to do, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's very hard, but you have to sacrifice and dedicate yourself to that or you shouldn't try because there's a lot of people that want it. So I spent my life growing up fully focused on becoming the best athlete I could while working a lot. So we had, uh, I played football and basketball were my main sports and track. I'm an Iowa kid. So I played everything. Um, and football was really my sport that I was best at and, you know, basketball too. And I ended up having a successful career as a kid, I went to college, kind of bounced around and, and end up playing in the NFL on the practice squad for the New Orleans Saints. And one thing you'll know about sports is my dad's right. They are very finite. And NFL for me was not for long. And I ended up getting cut. And I'll remember the moment I played for like three, three, almost three seasons. And I remember the moment when I knew in my heart it was over. And that's that's when I, I had to like take my dad's advice and truly be done and take all of that sacrifice and energy and focus and hard work and dedication and apply it to something else. I just didn't know what that something else was. And the timing was amazing because my dad needed help. You know, our business was 30 people or so. Uh, He had this aspiration of buying this facility that we ended up buying uh, three months after I got cut and Kashal had just I got hired onto the company. And next thing you know, in 2012, two 26-year-old kids 
Kashal and I are in charge of building this protein company from scratch. And fast forward 11 years and we've done it. And so now we have, you know, three, 300 employees, uh, two, two plants, awesome team, just a bunch of people that made the choice to come work at Pyrrhus and to build something special. It's incredibly hard. We work very, very hard. It's a hardworking company and it's pretty cool. And I will make a shout out to you that you were part of the New Orleans Saints when they won the Super Bowl. So that while short-lived was cool. <laughs> yeah. Thank, uh, thank you, Drew Brees. I appreciate that. Uh, no, it was, it, it's really one of those things where you take it for granted in the moment, but then you can have time to reflect and look back and what an amazing thing to be a part of because all we're trying to do at Pyrrhus is recreate Super Bowl teams. And if you can do that, that's really special. And not every team can sports are a lot different than business, but the, the, the camaraderie of it and the teamwork and, you know, the going after a goal and, and having a, a direction that's synthesized together and really going after it with gusto. That's all the same. Does that mean you're the guy in the office with all the sports analogies and like everything can be, <laughs> you know, I, I try not, I try not to be, but it, it, it does come up a lot. And <laughs> just because that's, that's what I've, been able to learn from and I can reflect back to prior to working at Puris, that's what I did. You know, I yeah. kind of had two acts, sports and then Puris. And maybe it's a good time to explain the three parts of the business and how they connect and like what you're responsible for versus what your sister is responsible for, who's a co-CEO with you. Mm -hmm. um, so can you dive a little bit into that and the structure and actually what it takes to create a market for these new products? For sure. So Nicole, she's a PhD biomedical engineer. She's my older sister. So that's what I had to deal with my whole life, just to throw that out there. And, uh, you know, a walking genius. And if she was on right now, she would be embarrassed. And this is what a kid brother does. And I'm very good at, at that. So my whole hope when I started back at Purist was to earn the right to get Nicole to come help the family business. And she did more of the work as kids then I had to, she was more capable than I was, of course. And, and she went and built this really cool career for herself and the med device industry. And that's how I ended up here in Minneapolis. So when I got cut from playing pro football, I didn't know where to go. I stayed with Nicole for a while and then got resigned. And anyway, so I move up here not knowing that I'm going to stay and we've ended up building Minneapolis as our home. This is where our food innovation center is. This is where we do everything. And then our plants are within striking distance from headquarters, as, as you'd call it. Once Nicole came back, we, we could look at the business differently than when we hadn't built teams to really scale up our entire end-to-end -end model. We were so focused on scaling up our pea protein business. So you asked, what does it and take? She and was, she was coming from the corporate world. So she had yeah. a very different experience and... You said skill set already than you, but different background. Different background. And, and she was launching products into highly regulated markets to deliver med device and like uh, drug coated balloons and things like that. So she was like saving people's lives. And I was trying to tell her, I was like, you could save people people's lives by feeding them better too. And you know, that's like your family business. So come help your brother out. So when Nicole came back, she first jumped in and just kind of plugged up every hole that we had. But our vision was we can amplify what we do on the seed side 
we can amplify what we do on the food side and we can double down on what we do in the middle on the ingredient side. And if we can really start building stickiness from end to end, that allows us to A, participate in the value chain, but ultimately cut out all of the waste. And if we can get smarter and build smarter food systems that are built to scale, this has a really great chance to play a huge role in the future. And that is exciting stuff. So what Nicole and I do, we, we divide and conquer. We work really, really well together. She, you know, we're different and what she's good at. I'm not what I'm, what I'm good at. She's good at too, but uh, we'd like to be complimentary. And uh, what I would say, the way we make the markets is we hire great people that make it happen. And yeah. we have really cool products with really great customers and if we can make our customers successful, we can make consumers happy, make farmers successful. It just all kind of works. And that's the goal. So there's three parts of the business. There's purest grains, holdings, and proteins. And what is it that you're responsible for versus what she's responsible for? And then kind of what they do underneath. Yeah. The easiest way to talk about it is purest holdings owns the grain side and then our food technology. And Nicole runs that. And I run Purest Proteins, which is our JV with Cargill, which is our North American pea protein manufacturing company and go to market. So that that is what we're known for most. All of it's Purest and, and really the, the whole end-to-end model is all kind of built together. We've had to fund the businesses differently because capital is always a limitation on getting where you need to go fast. And so we've been able to bring on great partners like Cargill. Uh, to invest in our vision. And man, are they are they helpful when we want to go big? Uh, doing it with the biggest is sometimes the best. And that's been a, you know, a great way for us to scale. And over the past three years, you know, we've done that. I'd love to ask you a little bit about partnering with a big corporate like Cargill. One, to explain who Cargill is in case no one has heard of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but then two, as a startup, if I can still call you that, uh, Partnering with a big corporate comes with lots of challenges, but that JV model is kind of interesting. Like, curious about why and how that works, and if, in terms of scaling things up, moving fast, tapping in, how it kind of makes sense. Yeah, for sure. So Cargill is an agri-food giant. I mean, global, one hundred fifty thousand employees. They own the supply chain from grain handling to farm services to uh, animal. Uh, protein operations and downstream processing of animal proteins to a huge business in uh, ingredients around from stevia to corn syrup and really everything in between. And they're really one of the, the major players in food. And they're, they're probably in and involved in everything in the grocery store to some degree. Uh, they're also based here in Minneapolis. And they also have a giant plant in my hometown of Eddyville, Iowa. So I grew up understanding and appreciating the scale Cargill has and, the, and what they can bring to the table. So when we were looking at our roadmap around pea protein and where we wanted to go, we knew scale would be critical and having the capital to build out the infrastructure would be a limiting factor for us, or we needed to find a partner. And we chose Cargill and they bet on us and the reason why it works, in my opinion, is we offer things to them that they don't have, and they offer things to us that we don't have. And if we're able to find synergies in that, it's a really strong muscle 
because we can move with strength and speed. And that type of partnership is really powerful. And I think what is good about it for us is that we have access and global scale. And I'd like to joke that Cargill has an expert for everything. And <laughs> our job is just to go help them uh, help us. And, and they certainly do. And, and, I, and I think the, the other thing is, uh, you know, we've gotten some blowback from partnering with Cargill and because of other things that they do in their, their market and people saying, you know, why would you partner with them? And I think we have to look at all big companies. They're trying to do better. And our job is to help make it happen for the world, not just for us. We need to use partnership to make things better. And when Cargill and General Mills and these huge companies decide to take a baby step, it's a massive baby step. And that can change the world with one decision. And I, I didn't appreciate that enough when I first started in this industry. And now I certainly do. And what we're trying to do is, you know, be that energy, be that push to get them to to do more. And, and they certainly have. And when you talk about that partnership that you each have something to give that the other doesn't have, is there anything you can name more specifically around like when you were evaluating the partnership, evaluating who it would be, like what you looked at and what is in that relationship? For sure. And, and where when, when Cargill made a big bet on Purist, it was pre-Beyond Me IPO. It was pre- Pete Which I'll protein. pause you for two things. When we say big bet, it's I think over a hundred million they've invested or put into this relationship. And then two, you have Beyond Meat as one of your clients that you sell your pea protein to. And obviously they're a huge producer of alternative meat or protein. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think Beyond Meat gets should get a lot of credit for creating some of the buzz around this industry. Cause when they went public back in 2019, that was a year after Cargo put their first chunk of capital into Purus. And so what does that mean? Well, Cargo already saw what was coming. They see the future. They understand where they want to play and they're willing to make those bets where other people aren't. They're not unsure and they, they'll jump in once the headlines tell them they should. But this, was, uh, this is what we brought to the table. And together they had the foresight and the vision of what, what needed to be true and also how these types of projects need to be handled. It's it's difficult to go pitch a, a, a plant and a big infrastructure capex to a VC firm that's not sure about the market, and that never that's where it, the yeah. yeah that's where the market was back then. Now today it's totally different. Last year there's been over five billion dollars invested in alternative proteins, mm. and even that part of not changing the perception around pea protein, but we have looked to soy for a really long time. So having people understand pea as an option. I don't really know what my question is here. It's just more, what? I think Annalisa, <laughs> more to say, how do you change the perception, you know, and get people to realize that pea is an ingredient you can buy. It's a thing you can use. Well, you're putting out what the truth of the matter is. is soy has been around for soy protein has been around for many, many years. And it's a very mature, highly developed market. You know, the leaders are major food ingredient players and those supply chains are kind of built out on the pea side of the ledger. Every dollar of incremental capacity is that incremental capacity that did not exist. And we're we're literally building out the market and the opportunity step-by-step. And past two years has been over $2 billion of invested capital going at pea protein infrastructure. Incredible. And it's still not enough. So as we go and, and fast forward to what the future looks like, 
this investment and this type of commitment to building out the solution to feed the market uh, will be required. And not only from an ingredient standpoint, but also on a downstream processing standpoint on how do we turn peas into plant-based burgers and chicken and all of the different things. That's what's coming. And there'll be a lot of investment needed. So we're just scratching the surface on, on really where this market is going. And when we talk about leveling the playing field, the capacity to produce soy, I believe is 10x that of peas. So there's like 80 million acres of soy that are grown. And I think you mentioned how many there are with peas, but even to talk about it to be a substitute or it to be another choice, there's just like way more soy in the market right now than there is pea. Yeah, for sure. And you look at it, there's 11 million acres of peas grown globally, and there's 80 million acres of soybeans grown in the United States. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, and and they they roughly produce the same amount of, of volume per acre. I, I use a metric ton just to make it easy. And, you know, about 5% or so of peas grown globally are used to make plant-based ingredients or ingredients in general. That's a very small amount. So same goes with soy. And the opportunity to build it out further, I think farmers are looking for value and plant-based food brings value to the supply system. I know also that I've been to visit your offices in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and you are also looking into new things you can make as well as what can you do to upcycle the waste. And that's another big conversation within food and creating a closed loop system and really making sure that it's regenerative and you, you know, you waste nothing. So what's happening in the lab or what are you looking at in terms of what else is possible? So we are, we just got our pea starch upcycle certified and it's uh, really cool because not even three and a half years ago, we were, that was waste. And so over a three-year period, we've built out very significant markets for our pea starch and now it's upcycled and going into uh, ready to drink beverages, baking mixes, uh, into materials market, um, you know, making things, um, a bio-industrial market, for lack of a better word. This idea of waste nothing, literally no waste, changes your whole perception on how you can create innovation. So what I think the plant-based industry has going for it is these types of things are in everyone's conversation today. And it's not the exception, it's the norm. It's the expectation that you figure out ways to upcycle your products and you're seeing it across the industry and we're, we're excited about that. And so what we plan to do is continue to create value from all parts of the P because that value can get shared across the entire system. I also want to touch upon the fact that you're in Minneapolis, St. Paul in Minnesota, and it's a really interesting place for food. So can you talk a little bit about why it's a hub for food or what kind of companies are even based in the area? Minneapolis in general is home to a lot of large corporations and was the start for many of the largest food ingredient companies and egg commodity companies from ADM to Cargill and, and many. They've now moved to Chicago, but this is the northern hub of the Midwest. And you know, people here call it the bold north. Target is headquartered here at General Mills, uh, Cargill, just to name a few. And it creates this economy, this ecosystem of really talented individuals that have either been trained uh, at these organizations and, and started their own thing, or maybe got into investing 
And what's happened is you're starting to see the playbook from the coast start to show up here in Minneapolis. And I think Purus is an example of one of the, the innovators that are doing that. So from an ingredient side, but there's a lot of uh, upstart CPG companies here as well. And you can imagine these are disciples from uh, the various players that, that exist. And what I think it can become is even greater than what it is. You know, the coast are market makers and marketing exciting and access to capital and all of those things are true. But food is made here. It's produced and grown here. And, and we have the ability to shape how food is consumed into the future. So I'm excited to see more businesses start and more people uh, take a shot and have that spirit. And entrepreneurship is certainly celebrated to today, you know, in media and pop culture. And that's great. It is hard though. And it's not as glamorous as a lot of people think. Uh, in the end, it's a bunch of hard work. If you can make a, that Super Bowl team though, it's really cool. And there is something about being close to production. Like it changes how you think about things. It changes the knowledge that you have around what are the problems that need to be solved and getting everything to work together. Because when I learned of your company and what you're doing, I did have the thought of like, this is like the Tesla foods kind of model because you're breaking similar to how they broke down the car and said, how do we reinvent every piece? You're breaking down the existing value chain of how we make food and saying, how can we do this another way? And what is it that looks good for the people, for the planet, for all of the different stakeholders involved that is much more sustainable. So it's quite exciting because, you know, food is getting sexier, but it, it feels like, um, this idea of vertical integration makes a lot of sense. And if you just do that for one commodity, cool. But like, what then happens if you're thinking in that systems way for other things as well? You're nailing it. You, you fast forward to the future and we, we view Purus as a platform and a home for solving and creating value and building food in the end for a multitude of things that farmers grow. And our biases that farmers should grow as many different things as humanly possible because that will drive diversity. And we know diversity drives soil health and soil health drives the impacts that we all want to see in human health, planetary health. Everything is tied back to the gut of the earth and that's that's the soil. Mm -hmm. And before I go into the last four questions everyone gets asked, I just want to hear this is a growing industry, but obviously, as you said, there's a lot of challenges. It's a lot of hard work. So what are the bottlenecks now? Like, What are some of the challenges you're facing, especially when we talk about U.S. agriculture? One thing that on my mind was the subsidies that farmers get right now and the fact that it's actually not a very sustainable system. So there's a lot to change in the ec economic model. But what are the bottlenecks that you're facing to really grow this business? Yeah, I think you nailed it with subsidies. Ultimately, the United States isn't in the game in terms of, of investing in this type of food manufacturing, Canada, EU, uh, Denmark, China, Australia, Singapore, everywhere else really is. And there's uh, a lot of other countries are coming from a perspective of food security or lack thereof. And by building food systems from plants, they have more of that. We call it protein independence. The United States, we have an abundance of food and an abundance of animal protein for that matter. And that's the legacy markets 
really get the capital. Uh, I like to talk about the ethanol market that has 10% of our fuel that we consume uh, is mandated that it's blended with ethanol, as we all know. And, you know, it's branded on the pump. And this has been a hundred year change process that, you know, back in the early 1900s, they were, well, first of all, uh, Henry Ford had an electric car, believe it or not. There's actually an electric Porsche back then, but uh, that's a whole nother thing. But they were running cars off of ethanol, mm-hmm. you know, made from plants. And so you fast forward to today, you know, over the, in the 2000s, there's over $55 billion of subsidies to support ethanol production. And there's been, there's over 150 plants built. If you've ever seen an ethanol plant, they are humongous and they handle thousands of metric tons of corn and which again, I'm not here to argue the merits of ethanol. I think that that's a great debate for people that are believers on one side or the other, but more about the system of how the United States decided we're going to make this something that we mandate and require because we think it's better. And that hasn't played out completely true. Am I at least based on a lot of the information that's out there yet it's maybe cleaner fuel that's burning. And in the end, it's 10%. So when you fast forward and 10% of meat, if that's what we believe is going to happen, are we as a country investing? Are, are we as states investing in a way to support that shift? I, I don't, I certainly know we're not uh, in comparison to other countries. And I think some of that is the change is hard. And mm-hmm. many people view the plant-based shift as a, an attack at legacy ways. And I think it can I think all will be involved into the future. You know, animal protein is not going anywhere. There are certain parts of it that make, make sense to come from strictly from plants. And if you can make it accretive for farmers, maybe it's a little less scary. And if you can build the outcomes from a climatary perspective that are empowering, then we should figure out a way to do it. So I think that, you know, of course, on the farm side, there's insurance, there's you know subsidies to farmers to support more sustainable agriculture. There's a lot of action that the Biden administration is trying to to make happen. So we'll see how that all shakes out. You know, of course, you know bottlenecks for us is you know, talent. As we scale, talent is always going to be challenging. So we're always looking for people that are uh, mission aligned and want to have a seat at the table to make things happen. Uh, that's what you get if you work at Purist. So I think talent is is a big one, and then. You know, obviously, the amount of capital that's going to, going to be required to build this out is, is real. And if we truly get to that 10, 20% as what people forecast, there's billions of dollars that need to be invested over the, over the next few decades. Billions, like many billions. And part of why I really wanted to talk to you, I know this is called the Nordic Food Tech Podcast, and you're based in the US. But one, I was telling you before that my mom's from Wisconsin but she's of Norwegian descent and also a little British. So like there was a lot of Scandinavians that made their way over and there's a lot of things culturally and even in terms of the landscape that look very similar. So there's a nice connection there. But two, when it comes to how far along you are in providing a business model and providing structure of what this can look like, because so many countries, and I just did a podcast with the Danish Vegetarian Society that was part of lobbying for Denmark to make this 1 billion kroner investment into plant-based agriculture. But then the question is, how do we do it? And this is really interesting for sitting and saying, well, here's a company that's doing it. And you can be inspired by it and take it with you somewhere else. 
Another podcast I just did with Ika, which is a big supermarket in Sweden, they are working directly with farmers who are asking them, like, what are the products you're going to make? How much of this kind of crop should I grow? Like, we need to understand where it's going to the consumer because it starts at the very beginning and it is very connected. It requires communication, which is, again, where the vertical integration and the ability to speak to all those chains and have them work together is quite cool and very interesting for what other countries or places can consider. The thing that's also challenging about this is that government is also involved and we do need regulation, as you were touching upon, but even in terms of where the funds come from. In the US, it's such a huge country. We have the federal programs, we have the state programs, like there's a lot of different opinions on those different levels of who supports what and blah, blah, could go on for about it for hours. But um, yeah, it's it's different challenges for different places, but I think there's a lot to be inspired by what you're doing. I appreciate that. It's uh, for me, as many plant-based meat companies talk about getting to price parity with animal proteins, it's challenging knowing the amount of capital that has to be invested and also the subsidies that animal protein gets. It's not a level playing field. So we're trying to get the price parity when it's not an even race. So that's challenging, yet that's not going to slow us down because no. we're at such a small scale vis-a-vis animal protein. So as we really build scale that can matter, I'm betting that the plant-based industry can produce in a more efficient and a cost competitive way, and it'll be affordable and accessible while delivering on the environmental outcomes and human health outcomes that we all hope. Mm. So I'm going to go now into the questions that every guest gets asked. Um, The first one is, what is your vision for the future in 10 to 15 years for the future of food? A whole bunch of plant-based protein, of course. My my hope, and you see this in in younger kids, uh, I I don't eat meat. My sister doesn't eat meat. And so her kids, uh, they're seven and five, and they're like, well, mom, you eat meat. And Nicole's like, well, no, I don't. And they're like, yeah, you do. You eat plant meat, you eat plant chicken. And this, this association of meat comes from animals is younger generations are moving away. So 10 years from now, 15 years from now, I could see people not even referring it to it as plant or animal just is. And that's really the race. And if we can make that happen, I think that would be pretty cool. It just is protein. Just protein. Because mm-hmm. in the end, that's really what it is. And it's the experience that you make that protein and that delivery and that that bite, that meal. That's what chicken is. And does it really have to come from a chicken? Seems to be uh, a silly way of thinking. Mm. And so what are we missing to get there to achieve that vision? I think uh, the taste is is critical. So we have to make better better tasting foods. They have to be more affordable, more accessible. You know, it's it's a shame our products. A lot of our facilities, it's very hard to even buy them. We have to convince the local restaurants to bring in a plant based burger and those types of things. So, as you see more accessibility to these types of food, then then more people can try it and drive trial and and say, hey. You know, sometimes I eat a beef burger and other times I eat a plant-based burger. It doesn't just a burger, you know, I'll do, I'll do both. And that is to me really important. And we're starting to scratch the surface on that in terms of accessibility. And then ultimately we have to build value system that participants throughout the, the whole model 
want to do it. And if you can make it frictionless, then they'll get pretty excited to scale those operations. Um, Just when we talk about friction, is there one example of how you've removed friction so far, like from how it was versus how you approach it now? Yeah. If you go on the crop side, a lot of people grow specialty crops and they, they talk about paying a premium over that same crop that's not specialty. So on soybean, they, you know, people grow clear hylum soybeans that then go and turn into tofu. And that gets paid a premium over the Chicago Board of Trade because it's special. So, and, and usually it's special and it doesn't yield as well. So if it doesn't yield as well, the farmer's gonna make less money. So they have to offset that by getting paid more per, per bushel because they're not making as many bushels. So by removing the friction of yield, where the plants can yield well or better than the typical commodity crop, then you can remove some of the friction of cost and, and, and affordability for the farmer. So that's, that's an example. Every single step in the system, we could talk about this. These mm-hmm. are fundamentally what we're trying to fix. And that's not all of them are easy. Not all of them create value right away, but over, over time, they certainly do. And I know you guarantee the farmers that you'll buy back the crop. Um, Perfect example. Yeah. Yep. When, if they agree to grow, do you find that they're into this and there's a yes, or is there a lot of convincing that needs to happen to, to get them to plant these things? I think there's certainly a lot of convincing for people that haven't done it before. You know, it's something new and you know, it's not all farmers are want a bunch of novelty on their farm. They're willing to try when commodity prices are where they are right now, it, it can become pretty tricky because you can make a good return by growing what basically everyone else grows. So that's that can be challenging. What we see is farmers that get on the Purist program, they stay on the Purist program. And so we know it works from that end. And the best, the best uh, way to recruit a new farmer is a referral from a yeah. current one. So the NPS is important, mm. as you can imagine. And what's important about a buyback program? Like, why does that matter to a farmer? What happens a lot is is farmers do not get security in what they're growing, that there's actually a market for it. So they're growing on speculation that they can sell it to someone. And what can happen in these smaller markets is the supply demand gets imbalanced and then there's no place to sell it, which will drop the price. And then ultimately there's no return for the farmer and that doesn't make any sense. So by us agreeing to buy back at a negotiated price, uh, we're locked in. So we're able to purchase what they grow. Uh, they know that they have a buyer to buy it. And you can create the, the, the virtuous cycle that allows them to be able to predict that I can move peas around my farm on rotation year over year. And Pierce is going to be my partner that buys it back. That's That's been a, a good model and, and one that we've continue to scale to, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres at this point. Mm. Oh, it's, it's hard. I have to stop asking questions because <laughs> I can ask a lot of them and it's so interesting. Um, but there's two more questions left that we must answer. And one is what collaborations are you looking for? If any, uh, we, as I mentioned, we have listeners from all around the world and the idea is that we can help each other. So what is it that you're currently looking for help on open mic? We have a robust team that's looking to create value all across the egg supply chain. So whether it's from C technology to downstream processing of a protein I've never heard of, 
we are interested. So we're looking at ways to partner through investment, through uh, joint ventures, through commercial ideas. We're looking to expand our access into markets that we currently are not in. We are, we say yes to calls and we'd like to talk and we like to understand what people's problems are. And in the end, we like fixing problems. So mm -hmm. we are hungry to hear uh, where you need help and see if that there's a fit for us to be helpful. And if so, great. If not, we're, we're still happy to make the connection. So I think that, and, you know, in the end, we just want to celebrate everyone that's building out the, the ecosystem that, that we think is so important, even you and the media side of this, like giving a platform for people to tell their stories and ours included, it's important. And, the food industry has done a dang good job at disconnecting the people from the way the food gets to their plate. And the more awareness, the more we shed light on what that is actually is and how food gets to you and the choice that you have and empower consumers, the more I think we'll start seeing change to things that are better outcome for the planet. Snaps for that. And when you think of entering new markets, I mean, this is a bit of a supply and demand thing of you need the farmer to grow so that you have something that you can then sell as the ingredient or the market or whatever else. So how do you approach that balancing act of needing one step to work before the next step works and all of mm -hmm. that? I think it's kind of a double approach. So the fact that we have products that we produce today, we can obviously ship them around the world, but the idea of producing locally is always the goal. And that can be really the methodology because you have to build the market to your point. So you get the, these, these complexities and, but you also have, you can't just go develop a seed program and not have a pathway to the market. So yeah. you're, you're just at this unique point. So what we've done in the past and what we're doing is we're a global business that has built a model here domestically. And we believe that it's, it's possible to replicate uh, globally. So how can someone best get in touch with you with Purist if they want to collaborate, have any ideas? What's the best way to get in touch? Definitely hit us up at purist.com as well. I'm active on LinkedIn. I, I got my first big break from uh, one of my board mem members, Charles Chang, by a cold LinkedIn email. Uh, he was the founder and CEO of Vega, and he replied back in five minutes, and we've been uh, big partners for a long time. So, and now he's an investor in our company. So I, I try to be disciplined and active on LinkedIn. So if you find me there, uh, I, I most likely will, will interact. And if I don't, I'm sorry, just it's buried. And then also I, you know, I'm on the other social things, but uh, LinkedIn and, and purist.com would be best. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and telling the story of the company. Have an awesome day. All right. That's all for today. So what were your thoughts on this episode? I'd love to hear them. Feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or Instagram or email me at nordicfoodtechpodcast at gmail.com. If you really liked it, consider becoming a patron and supporting the show for a few dollars every month. The link to do so is in the show notes or visit www.nordicfoodtech.io. Your contribution will make all the difference and enable me to tell more good stories about how we're creating a better future through food. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.